Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Less than eight hours left on that U.S. policy used right now to turn away migrants at the border. What's going to happen after midnight? The lead starts right now. Crisis at the border, and it's about to get worse. CNN rides along as migrants climb on top of a train, others crawling through barbed wire, trying desperately to get into the United States. What's going to happen when that key Title 42 immigration policy runs out at 11.59 this evening? Well, a top Biden administration official is here, and we will seek answers. Also, Trump's 2024 campaign playbook seems to be a repeat of falsehoods and indecency from 2020. How not only Democrats, such as President Biden, but also Republicans today are expressing revulsion at things Trump said at the CNN town hall. Plus, 18 years after disappearing, today movement toward justice and the tragic, tragic vanishing and murder of Natalie Holloway. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start today with a huge story in our world lead, growing fears about just how bad the humanitarian and economic crisis could get in the United States when this Trump-era immigration policy expires in just hours. The Biden White House has surged thousands of reinforcements to the U.S.-Texas border, I'm sorry, the U.S.-Mexico border, from Homeland Security officials to U.S. troops ahead of tonight's deadline, 11.59 p.m. Eastern, when Title 42 officially ends. Title 42, as you might recall, it allowed the U.S. Government to quickly remove migrants from the U.S., to deport them for the last three years, using the pandemic as an excuse. But starting tomorrow, every migrant encountered by border agents will have to go through a much longer processing procedure. That is expected to cause a serious backlog, not to mention much more illegal immigration. In recent days, the U.S. has already seen a huge jump in migrants. A Homeland Security official says border authorities encountered more than 10,000 migrants along the border yesterday, already surpassing government estimates. On the other side of the border, U.S. officials estimate that more than 150,000 migrants are currently camping out in northern Mexico, just waiting for the policy to officially end in a few hours. Now, this is not just an issue that will affect U.S. cities near the southern border. Brownsville, Texas official says migrants are requesting transportation to get to Chicago and Dallas and Houston and Brooklyn and Denver and Miami. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas this afternoon insisted the Biden administration is prepared for every scenario. We are clear-eyed about the challenges we are likely to face in the days and weeks ahead, and we are ready to meet them. We prepared for this moment for almost two years, and our plan will deliver results. CNN has teams on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border covering this important story. David Culver is in Ciudad Juarez after making a grueling journey along with migrants to the Mexico side of the border. We'll bring you his report in a second, but we're going to start with Nick Valencia, who's in Brownsville for us, Texas. Nick, do do officials in Brownsville, do do they think they're prepared for whatever might happen at midnight tonight? 
Jake City officials are projecting an air of confidence, saying that they are as prepared as they can be and hopeful that the policies put forward by the Biden administration, specifically opening up regional processing centers in the countries of origin that many of these migrants are, are traveling to, uh, uh, traveling from rather, are providing meaningful support or will provide meaningful relief here. And they need it. Just look at the scene behind me. Many of these migrants woke up on the streets of Brownsville because the respite centers are simply at capacity. And they've made it here, which is one challenge, but now many of those that you're looking at behind me are facing another challenge and that's being separated from their families. Earlier we spoke to one migrant who says he hasn't seen his wife for days and has no idea where she is. It's so got to be so difficult waiting for news about your wife. There's no one here giving you information about where she is or if they deported her or, or he doesn't know anything. This is one of those immigration buses that drops off those after the release on humanitarian parole. They uh, come from the open fields where we were earlier today, where we continue to see large groups of migrants travel through. Of course, the big question is, will there be enough space for them here in the city of Brownsville? They say they have a plan in place, Jake. Time will tell whether or not that plan will work. Jake. So Alejandro Mayorkas, the Department of Homeland Security secretary, is, is really he's out there. He's been out there now for several uh, days, if not weeks, saying, don't come to the migrant community. Do not come. We're not going to let you in. Uh, is there any indication that they're getting the message? You know, Jake, this is a phenomenon that's gone on for decades, and we've seen countless Department of Homeland Security secretaries deliver the same message. The fact of the matter is these migrants are fleeing something that they feel is better off. They have a better life for themselves here. Uh, so even if they are getting that message, they're going to travel to the United States one way or another. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia in Brownsville, Texas. Thanks. Migrants trying to enter the U.S., they're not just coming from Mexico. Many are coming from South and Central America and have traveled literally for months to reach the border. CNN's David Culver journeyed with some migrants riding on what's called the train of death for a chance to make it into the United States. We're just outside Ciudad Juarez, and this is the last train stop for this freight train that's eventually going to head into the city. And you can see already dozens of migrants in several of these cars on top of them, all about. They're asking us if we have water, if we have food. We climb on. The train slowly starts up again, heading north. We meet migrants from all over. Honduras. Honduras. Says he's from Honduras originally and wants to go to the U.S. Felipe Marcela from Colombia, also hoping to enter the U.S. I asked her why the U.S. She said to have a better future. Omar from Venezuela. In Baltimore. He's trying to get to Baltimore, Maryland. We rode for an hour. They've been on here for days, 12 days for Roberto and his family. He's with his dad and his sister. Says they've been attacked, they've been robbed. Describes a really treacherous trek. Part of the train journey north for some is on what's called La Bestia, the Beast. It's also known as the Train of Death and often controlled by cartels. <clears throat> Roberto wears a face mask to not infect the others. Tells me he got sick early on in his travels. Says a lot of them have been sick and over the journey he had to leave his two kids, young ones. He tells me his two toddlers nearly died, so he sent them back with family in Honduras as he continues on. 
They stand, sit, and sleep on metal construction beams covered in plastic, dirty clothes and cardboard used to make it as comfortable as possible. The heat and sun, brutal. At night, it's the cold and wind. The smells arrange sewage at times and burning trash as we drove past what appears to be an incinerator. Their souls worn down. It's very dangerous for women too. And they said food is, is just really scarce right now. Omar spent four days on board already. Food is run out. He showed us the little water he has left and the documents he clings to, keeping secured in plastic. He's reading through all the different situations that would allow you to enter the U.S. So he's got it printed out in Spanish. And he's got it, the address of his friend in Baltimore that he hopes to get to. Four days on the train for him. He said the first day he almost got really sick because the sun was just so strong. And now he's making sure to keep covered as much as possible. He wants to go to New York. For Omar, it's a familiar journey. He left Venezuela six months ago, already expelled once from the U.S. for trying to cross. He'll try again. Legally or illegally, he will cross, he tells me. I ask him if he's hopeful. I've got a lot of faith, he tells me. Ultimately, he hopes to get money to send back to his two kids in Venezuela. As we pull into Ciudad Juarez, about 25 miles still from the border wall with El Paso, we and the others climb out. And that's it. You can see most everyone now getting off. It's basically the last stop. Omar, among the last off, carrying his only belongings and somehow a smile. Planning to cross immediately. And we're giving you a live look right now at the destination for those migrants who are on board that train along with us. And you can see some changes that we've noticed in the past hour or so, Jake. We've shown you this spot over the past couple of days, but there's two large groups now. And it seems that Texas National Guard, along potentially with CBP, are, are separating single men to the far side. And then closer to where we are, mostly families are together. And some of these families we're starting to see take their belongings and toss them into a big, essentially, dumpster. And that's usually typical of what happens before they're going to be processed and allowed into the U.S. to go forward with their claims of asylum. With the single men who have been taken aside and put into another group, it's very likely that if it's following any sort of precedence that we've seen in the past, they'll be brought back over the border from the U.S. right here to Mexico. And that's part of the deportation and expulsions that we've seen under Title 42. So it's very possible that's exactly what's happening to that group, Jake. All right, David Culver with some important reporting. Thank you so much. Joining me now to discuss is Blas Nunez Nieto. He is the Assistant Secretary for Border and Immigration Policy at the Department 
of Homeland Security. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today uh, on such a, a busy day. Um, what, are, what are your intelligence sources telling you about how many migrants the U.S. Uh, could be encountering daily? Well, we've already heard it's been over 10,000 a day. Are you expecting after midnight tonight 15,000, 20,000 a day? What are you expecting? Yeah, thank you very much, Jake, for having me on the show today. Uh, look, we know that there are uh, many thousands of, of migrants, uh, you know, in Mexico and along the transit routes coming uh, north, uh, you know, seeking to access our border. We have been working, uh, you know, closely with our regional partners, including the government of Mexico, in order to, inf- you know, increase enforcement on those routes. Uh, you know, we have been averaging about 10,000 encounters a day. Uh, the last few days, you know, this is, you know, what we've been planning for, frankly, for the better part of two years. Uh, we always knew that the days leading up to the lifting of Title 42 and immediately after it were going to be challenging. And that's why we have been, you know, relentlessly focused on preparing for it for so long. You just said, and Secretary Magorcus has previously said you've been preparing for this for nearly two years. If that's the case, why are you only just now surging these people, uh, U.S. officials, to help out at the border? And why hasn't there been a bigger effort over the last two years, knowing that this day would come uh, to better convey and better prevent uh, all of these undocumented individuals from coming into the country. So we, we have, in point of fact, you know, been deploying people to the border on temporary details, you know, hundreds of them at a time now for the better part of two years. We have uh, over the last two years, been adding holding capacity at the border. It, you know, CBP facilities can hold 7,000 more people today than they could uh, two years ago. So we have been preparing. I, I would point out that, you know, we asked Congress for $4.9 billion to help prepare for the lifting of Title 42. We got less than half of that from the Congress. So we are working, you know, within the resources we've been given and the statutes we have, which are frankly, you know, broken and, and haven't been updated in decades uh, to deal with this challenge uh, that it, that we uh, you know knew was coming uh, during it was almost um, two million undocumented immigrants were thought to have uh, it, it come to the U.S. Um, during the first uh, year uh, of President Obama, the first twelve months, October to October, most of that President, I'm sorry, President Biden. Uh, uh, what do you think the number is going to be in, in a year? I mean, do you think this is going to be the biggest surge of undocumented immigrants and migrants coming into the U.S. ever? Yeah, so there's little doubt that the last two years we've seen, you know, a surge in, in migration that, that has been uh, large and, and we have, you know, reached numbers that we have not uh, previously seen. That said, we've also over the last two years, you know, expelled more than three million people uh, from the United States, which is also uh, a record. Uh, so, you know, as we think about the lifting of Title 42, you know, we will return to immigration processes, which, uh, as one of your correspondents noted, takes uh, take longer. However, they also carry with them significant consequences for people who are removed, consequences that don't exist uh, for people who are expelled under Title 42. And so we believe that the measures that we have taken, including the you know rule that was published uh, today, which puts some conditions on asylum eligibility for people who don't use lawful pathways, will uh, over time, uh, you know, reduce the numbers we're seeing at the border. Does the United States have enough uh, means to to take care of the the potentially millions of people who will be in a humanitarian crisis uh, at the border in Chicago, in New York, in Miami? I mean, are, are we going to be able to 
to, to help these people, um, it just seems like we're already stretched so thin. That's a great question, Jake. I would say that, you know, we have been working closely with cities throughout the country and with NGOs to build capacity to receive migrants and to, you know, transport them. But these are the costs of a fundamentally broken uh, immigration and asylum system. You know, the president has asked Congress on day one of this administration to come together and work on a bipartisan basis on immigration reform. Uh, We have not seen that from Congress. And as one of your correspondents noted, you've seen now these surges in migration happen under presidents of both political parties uh, who have tried to deal with this through executive action as as we have. Uh, But until we get, you know, Congress to come together and meaningfully reform our laws, you know, I think we're going to continue to see these surges. Isn't that kind of a cop out? I mean, he is the president of the United States. He can say, Congress, you work it out. But he he's the man in in the arena. I mean, he could be leading. Look, I get it's a it's a it's a high risk, low reward situation. President Bush tried it and failed. President Obama tried it and failed. But doesn't a problem this difficult require presidential leadership and not just, oh, Congress, you work it out and bring me something? Well, I think I think we have been leading. You know, we have been, uh, you know, through our executive authorities, uh, you know, doing very innovative things to try to address this problem, both by overseeing a historic expansion in the lawful pathways that are available for migrants to come directly to the United States, and also through, you know, imposing new consequences for those who insist on crossing irregularly between ports of entry. However, in this country, you know, we're not a dictatorship. We are a democracy, and that means that there are limits to what the president can do on his own without the U.S. Congress. So we continue to call uh, on Congress to come uh, you know, join together, work with us on a bipartisan basis to, you know, build a lasting solution here. Last noon is Nanto. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jake. I'm going to bring in CNN's Priscilla Alvarez next with the policy that kicks in once Title 42 ends this evening at 1159 and the strain this is going to put on U.S. border agents as well as American cities all over the country. And coming up, what CNN is learning about groundwork that could lead to a new U.S. prisoner swap with Russia in exchange for those two Americans still being wrongfully detained, plus how Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville is trying to explain himself after seeming to suggest that white nationalists are just like any other American. We're sticking with uh, the big story in our world lead. One minute before the clock strikes midnight Eastern time, U.S. immigration policy turns into a pumpkin. The pandemic-era policy, Title 42, will expire and will revert back to its original form, Title 8. Now, without Title 42 in place, migrants will now either be removed from the country, detained, or released into the U.S. Now, while their cases make their way through immigration courts, CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins us now. Priscilla, so what will this policy change actually look like in reality um, as the number of migrant encounters with U.S. uh, uh, law enforcement just keeps climbing? Jake, this boils down to a bottleneck issue. As you heard there, the numbers have been rising every single day. Sources tell me that it is now yesterday over 10,000. That's a new record for daily encounters. So as they return to that decade-old protocol, it becomes how do you process all of these people with, frankly, an outdated system. Under Title 42, for example, it took about 30 minutes to process someone because they were quickly expelling them back to Mexico or their origin country. When you're processing under Title 8, it can take hours. And so that is what is front and center and top of mind for officials is how they can get through 
the number of people that are coming through. Now, of course, the flip side is that it does carry higher legal consequences. And the hope among administration officials I've talked to is that that will discourage people from crossing. For example, if you returned you under expedited removal, you could be barred from the U.S. for five years. So the administration is really leaning in on enforcement to the point, actually, of introducing new policies that almost have echoes to the Trump era of by, for example, largely barring migrants who have come through other countries from seeking asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, the argument from the administration is that they're also opening lawful pathways to the United States ways in which people can stay where they are and apply to come to the U.S., but all of this really becoming a challenge, Jake. And, and Priscilla, you just heard a top immigration official uh, telling me that, you know, this is going to be actually in some ways tougher uh, for these migrant families in terms of the U.S. ability, um, for instance, to, to track the families as, as they're here. How would that work? That is a new program that is being rolled out that would essentially put some migrants not only with trackers like a GPS ankle monitor, but also under home curfew. So a way in which they'd have to stay in their residence for a certain period of time. That's a new program they're rolling out in four cities for some of the migrants who are released from custody. But look, Jake, I've been talking to administration officials all week and all day. Before it gets better, they say it's going to get worse. And that is what they're staring down as this midnight deadline comes around. I feel like that's the that's the the motto for the last few years. Before it gets better, it's going to get worse. Uh, Priscilla Alvarez, thanks so much. Let's go to Capitol Hill right now. CNN's Manu Raju is there. Uh, and Manu, you're keeping tabs on the fact that the House is voting right now on, on a Republican bill, uh, wide-ranging border security legislation. Um, how would this legislation impact the immigration process, and does it have any chance in the Senate? has no chance in the Senate, Jake. In fact, Senate Democratic leaders are planning to ignore this bill. The White House has threatened to veto this bill, and it's been the product of intense negotiations among Republicans in the House for months to try to deliver on their promise to push for a legislation to bolster border security. And that is the real aim of this proposal, to restart the progress on the border wall, on the southern border with Mexico, as well as provide new restrictions on asylum seekers, uh, reinstate the so-called stay in Mexico, remain in Mexico policy for those asylum seekers, change how the so-called e-verify process works for employers to check their immigration status. But even though it, the bill uh, has been a part of this negotiation among Republicans, getting most Republicans on board, the chance this is uh, there's significant dividing lines between Republicans and Democrats. In fact, the vote just wrapped up, Jake, and the final vote passing the House 219 to 213. There were two Republicans who voted against it. Democrats, 213 Democrats uh, voted, or the, the Democrats who were present, I should say, voted against this as well. So there were two Republicans who voted against it. So it was a bipartisan opposition, but not enough to scuttle it. Kevin McCarthy can only afford to lose four Republican votes. He was able to maintain the limit defections there to get this over the finish line. There is some division too, though, Jake, within the Democratic Party. Moderate Democrats in the Senate are pushing the, for legislation to allow the administration to continue with its expulsion authority, essentially allow them to kick, to, to prevent immigrants from crossing the border, even in the aftermath of Title 42 expiring. But that bill does not have the support of Democratic leaders or the White House at this point, James. And Mano, you're also learning about a major development on a different issue, and that's the fight over the debt ceiling, uh, which uh, the bills come due June 1st. Tell us more. Yeah, that's right. We had expected a meeting to happen 
tomorrow at the White House between President Biden and the four congressional leaders that they, they met earlier this week. There have been staff-level talks. But now we are told from multiple sources that that Friday meeting is, in fact, canceled. That The reason for that, they say, is to allow for staff-level discussions to continue. Those staff-level discussions have happened over the last couple of days. The effort is to try to narrow the differences between the two sides, come to some sort of agreement. So the leadership will not be meeting with Biden at the White House tomorrow. Perhaps they'll meet next week. But time is of the essence. Each day that passes, the prospects of the first ever U.S. debt default increase substantially, Jake, which is why getting a deal by next week is essential in order to get a bill through both chambers of Congress before that potential June 1st deadline. But perhaps the staff negotiations are progressing, which is one reason why the leadership is indicating they'll allow, they're not going to meet tomorrow, allow that staff level talks to continue, Jay. Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Coming up, the punchline from Team Biden today after watching all the lies from Donald Trump in that CNN town hall. Stay with us. A, quote, week's worth of damning content in one hour, unquote. That's how one advisor to President Biden characterized last night's CNN town hall with Donald Trump, in which the former president repeated a litany of lies about the 2020 election and COVID and the January 6th insurrection. He made fun of E. Jean Carroll, the woman a jury just found him liable for sexually abusing. He said he'll pardon members of the violent mob he incited in January 2021. CNN political director David Chalian is here to break down the fallout for us. So initially, David, correct me if I'm wrong, but Trump's team said that they had wanted to use this town hall, this opportunity to speak to Republican and unaffiliated voters in New Hampshire uh, to reach out to independent voters to expand his base. Um, do you think that that's what we saw last night? Yeah, no, I don't think that's what we saw in Trump's performance, nor do I think that's terribly surprising. I mean, I think we learned over the last eight years, Donald Trump is Donald Trump is Donald Trump. That That's uh, not going to change. And, and this was Trump in full last night. I mean, I think you saw uh, in, in just these 70 minutes, Jake, you saw why some Republicans in the establishment senators are still hand-wringing this morning about th- this should not be uh, the Republican nominee. It's why you uh, saw he's the formidable frontrunner when you saw the adoration from this crowd of Republican primary voters uh, in New Hampshire. And it's clearly, as you noted in your intro, you saw that the Democrats think it, w- it could help motivate their voters to remind them of the things that have driven them to the polls in the Trump era. Oh, yeah. But I mean, before I went to bed last night, the Biden team had... Uh turned in at least one of the moments into digital content. Uh, President Biden tweeted this video uh, just after uh, it ended. January 6th, it was the largest crowd I've ever spoken to. And they were there proud. They were there with love in their heart. That was an unbelievable, and it was a beautiful day. And it was a beautiful day. A beautiful day. Uh, and and uh, that's, just one, that's just one instance. I, I personally think his... I'm the one that overturned Roe v. Wade, uh, is not going to help him in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Well, no doubt. So those two issues, right? The issue of the democracy and uh, January 6th and attempting to overturn the election and lying about the 2020 election and all those election deniers that were on the ballot last year and the, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, those were the two things that mitigated 
the Democrats' losses last cycle. It's why they were able to hang on to the Senate. You, you know that. Even Donald Trump himself, Jake, sort of played pundit after the 2022 midterms and said, uh, because of the abortion issue, Republicans didn't do as well as they could. But then you saw now he is in the context of running in this Republican primary. He met with uh, the leader of a, a pro-life uh, group of the Susan B. Anthony list this week. And while he wouldn't commit to what he would do as president, he clearly wanted to remind Republican primary voters that he was the guy that achieved their 50-year goal on it. So he's... He's obviously the leading uh, candidate for the Republican presidential nomination by far, although it's early. We have no idea what's going to happen. Um, former Republican Congressman uh, David Jolly, who's a longtime Trump critic, uh, he tweeted uh, this, quote, DeSantis, the governor of Florida who is thinking about running against Trump for the nomination, DeSantis might as well save his money for 2028. At this point, there's zero chance Trump loses his grip on the GOP this cycle. I assume he was responding to, Congressman Jolly was responding to uh, the audience response. Uh, And I wasn't there, you were there. But we heard applause for Trump saying he he would pardon uh, violent insurrectionists in prison, criminals. Uh, We we heard them laughing when he made light of a sexual assault charge um, in which a jury sided with his victim. Um, They certainly seemed enthralled in it. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he has one of the strongest connections I've ever seen a politician have with their base of support. This audience was made up of uh, New Hampshire Republicans, as you noted, independents, all who say they plan to vote in the Republican primary. And you could see there was adoration in, in the crowd for him. He still has that very strong bond. It's why I think he is the commanding frontrunner in this race. I think Congressman Jolly or former Congressman Jolly is... It, to say zero chance before Ron DeSantis even gets in, we have miles to go in this Republican nomination. Yeah, um, there was uh, a, a policy-wise a lot of a lot of things he said yesterday that were um, stunning. Um, one of them was uh, when he said something very different about the U.S. defaulting on its loans than he used to say when he was president. When he was president, he said you should the government should never default on its loans. We should always raise the debt ceiling. Congress voted to do so several times when he was president with no spending cuts. That's not his position now. Take a listen. I say to the Republicans out there, congressmen, senators, if they don't give you massive cuts, you're going to have to do a default. Now, first of all, he never pushed for massive cuts when he was president. Not once. Second of all, that would be, according to every, every respected expert, left, right and center, devastating to the U.S. economy. This is going to make it even more difficult for Speaker McCarthy to come to some sort of deal with President Biden. There's no doubt. And and President Trump said it's just psychological, perhaps, what the impact would be, Not despite true. what every single economic expert has said. So you're right to point that out. But yes, this is now going to give comfort to some of the hardliners in McCarthy's conference as he's trying to negotiate a deal to avoid the first U.S. default ever, to avoid catastrophic catastrophe to our economy. And now Donald Trump has given cover for those hardliners to hold Kevin McCarthy's feet to the fire. That makes the negotiating more difficult. David Chalian, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, phoning a friend. What sources tell CNN about outreach to U.S. allies to help with a potential prisoner swap with Russia? Stay with us. Calling all Russian spies. According to sources, the Biden administration is attempting to source certain Russian criminals from allies in hopes of swapping them, swapping them for two Americans currently detained in Russia, Paul Whelan and Evan Gershkovich. Currently, the United States does not have any high-level Russian spies in its custody, they say. 
Let's get right to CNN's Kylie Atwood at the State Department. She broke this exclusive story for us. Kylie, so which countries could have Russian spies that, that fit the bill here? Yeah, well, listen, Jake, we know that U.S. officials' outreach extends to Germany, Brazil, also a former Soviet bloc country, and Norway. Those are just among the countries that have recently arrested Russian spies. We know in the case of Germany, however, that Russia actually asked for a Russian spy who was in German custody convicted of murder. And the U.S. went to Germany last year to try and discuss the matter, and that didn't actually go anywhere. We don't know how far along these conversations with these other countries are. But what we also know, Jake, is that the Biden administration is trying to cast a wide net here. They're not only going to countries that have Russian spies in their custody, but they're also going to close U.S. allies to see if they can come up with some creative ideas to gin up Russian interests, you know, things that the U.S. could use as leverage at the negotiating table, because we know that they want to get out both Gershkovich and Paul Whelan at the same time. Why do they need to find a Russian spy specifically? It's a really good question because right now the U.S. does have in its custody a lot of Russian cyber criminals. But those just aren't the people that the Russians want in return for Gershkovich and Paul Whelan because the Russians are treating both of those wrongfully detained Americans as spies. And so what we have heard from U.S. officials who have been engaged with Russia on this topic is that in engagements when it came to Paul Whelan late last year, they made it very clear that they wanted in return a Russian spy because they're treating Paul Whelan as an American spy, of course, even though the U.S. government and his family has denied that. And they expect that Russia is going to make similar demands for Gershkovich. So they have to essentially scour the globe to see who has Russian spies, which allies have Russian spies that the U.S. could potentially offer up on the table, as well as these more creative ideas that they're trying to come up with right now. Jake. All right. Fascinating. Kylie Atwood at the State Department. Let's hope they're successful. Good uh, Evan and Paul home. Coming up, a major step towards justice 18 years after the tragic disappearance of Natalie Holloway. In our world lead today, some sense of relief for the family of Natalie Holloway, the American teenager who disappeared nearly 18 years ago in Aruba. Now, one of the last people to see her alive is being brought to the United States. Joran van der Sloot, who is already serving time for murdering a different woman in Peru. He faces extortion and fraud charges in the U.S. And CNN's Gene Casares is now going to explain how this is all related to Holloway's disappearance 18 years ago. 18 years after Alabama teenager Natalie Holloway vanished on a school trip in Aruba, the prime suspect in her disappearance is being extradited to the United States. Joran Vandersloot, who was one of the last people to see Holloway alive and twice detained in connection with her disappearance, will finally face federal charges in the U.S. for extortion and wire fraud. He knows exactly what happened. He knows what, where, when, who, why, and how. He knows the answers. He is accused of extorting thousands from Holloway's mother, Beth, in exchange for details on the location of her daughter's remains. According to legal documents in March 2010, Vandersloot, quote, offered to take the cooperating witness to the location of Natalie Holloway's body, advise as to the circumstances of her death, and identify those in her death and disappearance in return for a payment of $250,000. Papers were signed. A total of $25,000 was given to Vandersloot, and Holloway's attorney flew to Aruba. 
Vandersloot took the attorney to a house saying her body was buried within the foundation. Soon after fleeing to Peru with the $25,000, he emailed the Holloways saying, quote, he had lied about the location of Natalie's remains. Extortion charges were filed a short time later. In May 2005, the 18-year-old Holloway was last seen leaving a nightclub in Aruba with Vandersloat and two other men. All three were charged by Aruban prosecutors in 2007 for involvement in manslaughter, but a judge ordered their release, citing a lack of direct evidence. Her body was never found. Beth Holloway said in a statement, she would be 36 years old now. It has been a very long and painful journey, but the persistence of many is going to pay off. Together, we are finally getting justice for Natalie. After the U.S. legal proceedings conclude, Vandersloat will be sent back to Peru, according to a statement from Peru's judiciary, to a Peruvian prison where he is serving time for the murder of 21-year-old Stephanie Flores. She was murdered five years after Holloway's disappearance. CNN was allowed exclusive access to Vandersloat's cell shortly after his arrest, and in 2012, he was sentenced to 28 years in prison for that murder. And the attorney for Jorn Vandersloat is telling CNN tonight that he is vowing to fight this request for extradition, saying that he believes that the charges are too old. But there is that extradition treaty between the United States and Peru. It was signed in 2001. And as I read it, I do not see a date. And Jake, you know, I was in Peru for a month when Jorn Vandersloot was being arrested. I was in his cell when they took him out. The prison Castro Castro that he was in is a very violent prison, and he will have a wake-up call when he comes to the United States because, Jake, they can wear their own clothes in prison, they can carry knives in the prison, and you can make a meal and take it to the prisoner anytime you want. All right, Gene Casares, thanks so much. Coming up, the remarks about white nationalists in the military from Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, and then his attempt to clean up those remarks. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the promising signs a vaccine could be the cancer-fighting breakthrough that the world has been waiting for. Plus, Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville just spoke to CNN about his previous comments suggesting that white nationalists are just um, like any other American. Did he clarify what he meant? And leading this hour, at least one criminal charge expected soon in the chokehold death on that New York City subway. Sources say that Daniel Penny the U.S. Marine who restrained Jordan Neely earlier this month is expected to surrender to police tomorrow morning. Witnesses say Neely was shouting and disruptive, saying that he was hungry, thirsty, had little to live for. He made some other passengers uncomfortable. And then Penny put him in a chokehold, which killed him. CNN's Omar Jimenez is live for us in New York. Omar, what charge or charges is Penny expected to face? Yeah, Jake. So as we understand from from two sources familiar uh, with the case who tell CNN that the DA's office has decided to move forward with a manslaughter charge here. Of course, this was something that we had been waiting to hear for a while now, ever since a few days after this happened and after videos circulated of Daniel Penny, this 24-year-old Marine who had put uh, Jordan Neely in a chokehold on a subway car. Now, he is expected, Penny, to turn himself into police Friday morning as these proceedings move forward. And one thing that was really critical in, in this case here is a lot of the videos that came out showed what was happening 
after the chokehold had actually uh, taken place, after it was already underway, essentially. So a lot of what was being looked at here was what led up to this actual moment. And so they got that, likely, from witnesses that they had been speaking to on the scene, witnesses who have told CNN in some cases that there didn't seem to be any words before this chokehold, but also that Neely appeared to be acting erratically as well. So that likely played a factor into this as well. And then the crux of what people had been protesting over in protests, scattered ones that we'd seen throughout New York City and some elsewhere, was that should this have ended in death? And protesters say no, despite, of course, what may have proceeded beforehand. His defense, however, Penny has argued that he was doing this to protect the safety of those on the passenger car, though witnesses said nearly hadn't attacked anyone yet. But again, it's what passengers were feeling prior to that that will likely play a big part in this case. Uh, for our part, we have reached out to attorneys for Daniel Penny on this particular uh, on these particular details about the charge and turning himself in. And I haven't heard back at this point, but obviously a significant development in this case. And again, tomorrow morning is when he's expected to turn himself in. Yeah. And, and we, we should know that this death um, not only has sparked protests, um, but it also has prompted some very serious conversations yeah. about how society de- deals with people with, with serious mental health struggles in this country. Yeah, Jake. I mean, th- this was someone who, by all accounts, people, friends that we've spoken to uh, years ago, knew him as, as this dancer, as Michael Jackson impersonator. And then over the past few years, his situation had really started to decline and, and some part tied to, to the killing of his mother. And so a lot of the friends we spoke to were saying, oh, we haven't been able to reach him since 2017, since 2016, and that there re- was even an effort to go out and search for him in recent years. And when one of those friends said that she actually encountered him on the subway and went as far as to offer him the shirt off of her back and let him know that she was there for him as needed. But of course, how he actually got to that subway car that morning, the events that happened in his life are what are going to be the continued conversations from this outside of the particulars of this case, Jake. All right, Omar Jimenez, thanks so much. Let's bring in former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Ellie, um, what, what do you make of the district attorney bringing this uh, apparent manslaughter charge? Well, Jake, I think this is an extraordinarily difficult case for any prosecutor. As Omar said, so much here is going to turn on the specifics, the interaction that led up to it, the actual amount and degree of of physical force used, the duration of that physical force used. And I think what we've seen here is the DA has decided to bring a charge. And ultimately, this will have to go to a grand jury. And then eventually, uh, unless there's a guilty plea, it'll have to go to a jury. It's a tricky case. I think the DA wanted to cover himself and make sure that at least he brought the charges and perhaps leave it up to the discretion and the judgment of a grand jury and a jury down the line. What were the range of charges that the district attorney might have been weighing? Uh, Was murder on the table? Well, so murder is a very different charge. The the key distinction here being intentionality under New York state law. There could have been a murder charge, but you would have to show an intent to kill. And even based on the limited evidence that we've seen, including the video, that looks like that would have been a seriously difficult showing to make. Manslaughter here means recklessness or indifference to human life. And so the idea would be that the amount of force here used was excessive, was reckless, was done in a way that was patently unsafe and was not justified by the circumstances, was not justified by, in this case, the victim, Mr. Neely's actions. I mean, New Yorkers have, generally speaking, the ones I know, 
have experience riding the subway. They have, have experience feeling threatened, have experience encountering people with mental health issues. Um, the jury pool, it's, that's, uh, they're going to have some firsthand experiences with similar situations, perhaps. Yeah, that's going to be a, a tricky part of this case, but it's important to keep in mind, the question really will not be, was the victim or was Mr. Neely threatening people or was he alarming them? The, the question is going to be, was he posing a direct physical threat to either the defendant or to somebody else that necessitated this level of use of force? So I agree. I think jurors are likely to bring their real life experiences, feelings, passions into play, even though they're not supposed to, they're still human beings. But again, just being a nuisance, just being bothersome is not going to be enough here. The question, the real crux of this is going to be, was this individual posing a physical threat to somebody? All right, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Turning to our politics lead, what is at stake for the 2024 presidential race and at stake for the nation and at stake for the world? Donald Trump, the current frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination, Last night in a CNN town hall unleashed an hour plus of classic Trump lies and attacks. Trump campaign sources had said that the twice impeached loser of the 2020 election would try to use CNN's town hall to appeal to independent voters and expand his base. I'm not sure that he accomplished that. He instead underlined that he is a veritable fountain of disinformation and seems to believe that violence committed in service to him is nothing short of heroic. So let's start with a rundown of the lowlights uh, with his out-of-the-gate lie about the 2020 election, which he lost fair and square. I think that uh, when you look at that result and when you look at what happened during that election, uh, unless you're a very stupid person, you see what happens. A lot of the people, <laughs> a lot of the people in this audience and maybe a couple that don't, but most people uh, understand what happened. That was a rigged election. And it's a shame that we had to go through it. It's very bad for our country. The election was not rigged. Not. Not. Not rigged. As judge after judge ruled, as election board after election board found, as Trump official after Trump official testified under oath during the investigation of the insurrection, because those election lies incited the angry mob of Trump supporters to storm the Capitol to try to stop the democratic process on which we base our nation. When asked about the insurrection last night, for which we should note he is under investigation by special counsel Jack Smith, Mr. Trump said this about the convicted violent rioters if he wins re-election. I am inclined to pardon many of them. I can't say for every single one because a couple of them probably they got out of control. Trump made it very clear, again, he believes most of those who committed violence to stop the democratic process are heroes. He, he used the word thug once last night. He used it to describe a black police officer who shot a Trump supporter who had been violently trying to get into the House chamber. Now, we should note the House, uh, the town hall chamber, the town hall audience was made up of New Hampshire Republicans and independents and undeclared voters. Some seem to applaud Trump's promise of pardons for the criminals who stormed the Capitol that day. Let us remind you, these are the people we're talking about getting pardoned. And this, this is what Trump last night called a beautiful day. Earlier 
Earlier today, a Third Circuit court judge noted that Trump's remarks, telling a legal conference in, in Philadelphia, quote, everybody in this room has seen the video. He said, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? The town hall was held just one day, one day after a jury found Mr. Trump liable for sexual abuse and defamation of writer E. Jean Carroll in the 1990s. Some in the audience seemed to enjoy Trump once again defaming the woman to whom he now owes $5 million for sexual abuse. They said he didn't rape her. And they did I didn't do anything didn't. else either. You know what? Because I have no idea who the hell she is. But Mr. President, I don't know who I, this woman is. They said, sir, don't do it. This is a fake story, and you don't want to give it credibility. One That's thing why you, I didn't go. One thing you did do in this. And I swear, and I've never done that. And I swear to I have no idea who the hell. She's a Mr. whack President, job. You, you did not testify. The reaction today uh, has been rather harsh. The Biden campaign did not waste any time tweeting out a video of Trump's January 6th comments alongside video of the insurrection. But we should note it is not just Democrats today looking askance at Trump's many false and outrageous comments last night. The Senate's number two Republican, John Thune of South Dakota, quipped, quote, it looked like a lot of Democratic campaign ads being written last night, unquote. And several other Republicans today seem to be distancing themselves from policies and positions Trump laid out on the debt ceiling and the Russian war on Ukraine and the pardons not to mention his overall fitness to be president. Let's go to Capitol Hill right now. CNN's Manu Raju has been chasing lawmakers to get their reactions to the town hall. Manu, um, it seems like Trump did some damage uh, last night, at least when it comes to his standing with Republicans on Capitol Hill who previously had supported him. Yeah, that's right, including one in particular, Senator Todd Young of Indiana, a conservative Indiana Republican, someone who has aligned himself, supported a lot of the Trump policies, supported him in the past, said he will no longer support him, voicing concerns that were echoed across the line among traditional allies and some critics about those comments about Ukraine, not taking a position on Ukraine versus Russia, not calling Vladimir Putin a war criminal, suggesting that he would pardon a vast majority of those January 6th defendants, and also suggesting that the United States should defend fault if Republicans don't get their way on spending cuts. Republicans up and down the line were pushing back. President Trump's judgment is is, uh, wrong in this case. Uh, President Putin and his government have engaged in war crimes. I mean, does it worry you that your party's leading presidential candidate? Of course it does. That's why uh, I don't intend to support him for the Republican nomination. Where I differ with President Trump is... If we end this war and Putin's still standing, he's unaccountable uh, for the war crimes. You don't end the war, you just create more conflict. I think people saw last night uh, what they would get with another term of uh, Donald Trump as president, uh, which is uh, completely untethered to the truth, uh, uncertain as to whether he wants Russia or Ukraine to win uh, in the brutal conflict with Russia has imposed on Ukraine. Uh, I think uh, I think it was a great opportunity for the people of America to see just exactly uh, uh, who it is Donald Trump has become. And a number of Republicans also did not want to weigh in. Some senior Republicans, as well as the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, who was asked repeatedly today about a number of Trump's comments. He did not weigh in. He will have, he's having a press conference in a matter of moments on a different topic. We'll see if he decides to engage there. But others as well, even some Trump critics, like Senator Lisa Murkowski, said everybody's talking about the town hall, but I don't want to engage on this topic. And another Trump critic I just talked to, Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas, said he is done talking about Donald Trump. So a lot of members and a lot of reaction, but also a lot of pushback from the former president's own party. 
All right, Manu Raja on Capitol Hill. Interesting. Coming up, this stepped up law enforcement along the U.S. border with just hours to go before a key immigration policy ends. I'm going to talk to the mayor of one border town, plus reporting first on CNN, the new weapon headed to Ukraine as it tries to fend off strikes from Russia. In our world lead, we're less than seven hours away from what's amounting to be one of the most historic border crises in decades in the United States. At 11.59 p.m. Eastern, the Trump-era health policy called Title 42, which currently allows officers to expel migrants much more quickly because of the pandemic, well, Title 42 is set to expire. Right now, more than 100,000 migrants are standing at the border, we're told, waiting to enter the U.S., where authorities could quickly become even more overwhelmed than they already are. CNN's Rosa Flores is in El Paso, Texas for it right now, where the city is bracing for what's to come. Dark, cold, dusty. That's how the final day of Title 42 started near the banks of the Rio Grande in El Paso, Texas. In the encampment where hundreds of migrants were waiting to get processed by immigration authorities. This couple from Colombia who didn't want to be identified by name wanted to make a fire to keep their 10-year-old daughter warm. They say she's shaking from the cold, the overnight chill going straight through the blankets. Just feet away, migrants arriving, including this couple. Did you want to come before Title 42 ended? They say they're from Colombia and that the woman is 37 weeks pregnant. Come down on three. One, two, three, down. Just feet away, a team of Texas National Guard members assemble border barriers of concertina wire. The work is slow, coordinated, methodical. This is the sharp metal migrants crawl through to enter into El Paso. Major Sean Storid, the commander of this mission, says his team has deployed more than 17 miles of it. But as Title 42 ends, Guard members are doing something different, creating a gap in the border barrier. We actually created that gap not to admit people, but to give the migrants the opportunity to go back. Storid says Guard members will explain to migrants that once Title 42 lifts, there are consequences to entering illegally. We don't want to trap them into that bad decision to cross illegally. We wanted to give them the option to take it back. But some migrants crossing along the nearly 2,000-mile border were not choosing that option. Not in El Paso. Not in Yuma, Arizona. And not in San Isidro, California. Border authorities on the U.S. southern border are encountering about 10,000 migrants per day and Border Patrol holding facilities are over capacity, according to federal officials. As for what will happen when the clock hits 11.59 tonight and Title 42 ends? We are clear-eyed about the challenges we are likely to face in the days and weeks ahead, and we are ready to meet them. Back in El Paso, a group of migrants huddle on the Mexican side, determining how to cross into the U.S., while a group of three others had just crawled through the concertina wire, the woman's hand caught by the sharp metal. And her friend shows us the gaping wound on his leg, the result of an assault in his native Guatemala. And says the conditions in their countries is the very reason why migrants risk and endure everything to be here. 
about the expectation once Title 42 lifts. You know, it's mixed. There are some officials who say that they're expecting a spike. And yet I spoke to U.S. Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz yesterday, and he says that the surge is now, that it's already happening, that it's been happening for the last five to six uh, days. But, Jake, here's what everybody agrees on, and that is that resources on the border are already strained. Jake. And they're about to get even worse. Even more strange. Rosa Flores, thank you. Let's bring in the mayor of El Paso, Oscar uh, Leeser. Uh, mayor Leeser, thank you so much for joining us. So in just under seven hours, Title 42 is going to expire. Uh, the number of migrants uh, in your city uh, will no doubt increase significantly. Um, you're increasing law enforcement uh, at presence. And, and you added in a statement saying, quote, several migrants have been seen crossing major rail ro- roadways in large groups. And some have entered yards in search of shelter and un- unoccupied homes or buildings. Describe for us what's happening in El Paso and how your city is is dealing with um, this economic and humanitarian crisis. Well, this is nothing new as they've been going into the areas and we have been working with uh, local uh, border patrol agents, local police department, and really all the departments around the city. We've been working together to continue. Our number one priority is to make sure that we keep our community safe. And that's what we'll continue to do and make sure that our asylum seekers, you know, not in the roadway and they're in harm of incoming cars, especially crossing the freeway. And that's been something that's been very important to make sure we keep them both safe. But our priority continues to be the community of El Paso. Now, we have gotten excellent resources from the federal government. Secretary Mayorkas has and FEMA has given us funding to make sure that we have enough money to be able to do this. But I'll, I'll tell you, this is the immigration process is broken. It needs to be fixed because there is no end game and we need to continue to have the resources to continue to do this. But our community and all communities across the country, we can't continue to do this for eternity. It, there has to be where, you know, Congress, somebody needs to agree to disagree and come up with a solution to be able to relieve our communities because we're working together and we're, we're prepared for uh, May 11th. We're prepared for, tomorrow. But, you know, the unknown is we don't know what's coming behind. We'll continue to to do the job of the federal government because they're not here to come to El Paso. They're here to come to the United States. We'll continue to help as process them. And uh, that's something that's been very, very important to us. So if you were king, right, if you were a magician and you could snap your fingers and there would be and the immigration system, which everyone agrees is broken, uh, is fixed. What does that mean? Is, it, is there a border wall that prevents people from crossing illegally? Is there a more streamlined system that allows individuals to declare uh, asylum more easily? What, what would uh, make things better for the, for the citizens of your city? Well, I'm not in Washington today, and, and I'm not seeing what they're going through day in and day out. But I, I believe that uh, we need to work with other countries. We need to make sure that we work with them to make sure they don't go through the process of coming through the desert you know, and uh, getting taken advantage of. And then they come into the United States under false pretense. A lot of them that are coming in today believe that if they're here by the end of Title 42, they get political asylum. And that's not a correct statement. The border is closed today and the border will be closed tomorrow after Title 42. They're under the assumption that they'll be here. And that's where you see the huge influx. That's where you see all these people. I went to Waters yesterday. I drove to see how many people were in Waters ready to come over. And I've talked to some of the people and they believe that they have to be here before midnight to be able to get that political asylum. And unfortunately, that's not what it is. The border will continue to be closed. And now not only will Title 42 go away, now Title 8 comes into effect. It's been really in effect since 1940. 
Right. But I mean, as you know, they're, they're fleeing. I mean, it, some of them are fleeing crime. Some of them are fleeing poverty. Some of them are fleeing per, political persecution. You know, individuals coming from from Cuba and Venezuela. Uh, obviously, it'd be great for people to not try to cross illegally, but that's not going to happen. The United States is always going to be a country people want to escape to uh, because of we have a higher quality of life. What what, what more directly would you want uh, to uh, make it so things aren't as bad for the citizens of El Paso? Well, I, I would like to see a quicker process, as, as you were talking about, because you're right. This country is a country of opportunities, and you know they come for the opportunity to be able to have a better job, raise their family and be safe from, you know, crime. So you're absolutely right. I'd like to see more immigration judges, the ability for them to be able to go to work. When I talked to them and uh, the mayor and I of New York sat there and talked to them and he asked them, he says, how many of y'all want to go to work today? Every one of them raised their hands. So they're here for an opportunity and we really need to expedite those process. We can't sit there and wait for five or six years and make sure that the process and the expectations on how to, manage the process, it becomes simpler and clearer for everybody coming into the U.S. El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser, thank you so much. Come back on the show. Let us know how things go in the coming days. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Have a wonderful day, sir. Coming up, Ukrainian soldiers gaining ground in the brutal fight for their country. CNN joins Ukraine's forces at the tip of the spear as they try to beat Russian troops back. Our world lead brings us to Ukraine now. The fight in the city with Europe's largest nuclear power plant, Zaporizhia, is intensifying, according to Ukrainian officials there. They say Russian cluster shells injured eight civilians in a village nearby. Three were ambulance workers who had responded to the scene. In a predictable refrain, Russia claims it was targeting deployment points for Ukraine's military. Meanwhile, northeast of Zaporizhia, Ukraine says it's clawed back significant ground in Bakhmut, CNN's Nick Robertson spoke to Ukrainian commanders on the ground who want to set the record straight on which Russian troops retreated first. At the vanguard of Ukraine's most successful offensive in months, elite soldiers storm out of their U.S.-made M113 troop carrier near Bakhmut. Over the following three days, they would take back close to two miles of eastern Ukrainian territory from Russian troops. Their commander explains, dry ground, new U.S. attack vehicles helping reverse months of losses. Everything was planned and calculated, and we had an advantage because we used armored vehicles. This time, the weather gave us a chance to use all our might and show what we're capable of. Yevgeny Prigozhin is saying the reason you took territory is because the Russian forces ran away. Prigozhin is a liar because the first to flee were Wagner. It is his units that fled. And our success is not due to the fact that they fled, but the fact that we conducted a planned assault by circumventing and cutting them off. Actually, the unit he is badmouthing fought to the end. His Wagners were the first to flee. Cleaned up and back from the battle, three young troop commanders recall the first moments. You are nervous. You feel the shivers, Oles says. Every sound scares you, especially the whistle of a mortar shell. With their success, losses too. It is always painful and hard to lose, Bars says. But it doesn't stop us. It makes us angrier, tougher, and gives us motivation to go all the way and not stop. Each of them knows more battles to come. 
After each fight, morale goes up, then down, then up again, Judo says. You have to motivate them somehow. And this last battle, not done when the Russians were pushed back. They regrouped, rushing in, reinforcements. Not for the first time in the days-long fight, US-made weapons making a decisive difference. This time, HIMARS precision rockets. Their reserves were too far away, and this allowed us to destroy the enemy, even as we approached them. We used unmanned aerial vehicles to see where they were concentrated, which enabled us to use a HIMARS for a precision strike. His battalion estimate in their sector of the fight two to three hundred Russian soldiers killed, but he is quick to acknowledge those soldiers' strengths and says Prigozhin is wrong to discount the Russian army. So their offensive was so successful. In the hours of this morning, another attack was launched around Bakhmut. Now, commanders aren't saying how successful this part of the offensive is being. And interestingly, they're not saying whether or not it's connected with the big expected counteroffensive. But significantly on that, Russia's defense ministry is saying we're not losing any ground around Bakhmut at the moment. And that's unusual for them to come out publicly and say that. Jake. All right, Nick Robertson in eastern Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Meanwhile, brash Russian warlord and Wagner army chief Yevgeny Prigozhin says Ukraine's counteroffensive is already in full swing. But Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says his country needs, quote, a bit more time to launch its counteroffensive while it waits for more Western aid to ar- arrive. Ukraine has gotten a new major delivery, Britain's modern long-range stealth cruise missiles capable of striking deep into Russian-held occupied territory which CNN's Jim Shudo was first to report. As Ukrainian forces prepare to launch a massive new counteroffensive, they now have a deadly new weapon in their arsenal. CNN exclusively first reported that Britain has delivered to Ukraine its advanced Storm Shadow cruise missiles, the kind of long-range capability Kyiv has long been pleading for. The donation of these weapon systems gives Ukraine the best chance to defend themselves against Russia's continued brutality. The Storm Shadow gives Ukrainian forces the ability to strike deep behind Russian lines. A Western official called it a proportionate response to Russia's targeting of civilian infrastructure. However, Ukrainian forces have pledged to fire the missiles only inside Ukrainian sovereign territory, not to attack Russia itself. While the U.S. has so far refused to provide Ukraine with long-range missiles, such as the Attackums, for fear of sparking Russian retaliation, the U.K. has been more forward-leaning with its weapon supplies. In recent months, the U.K. provided modern Western Challenger 2 tanks before the U.S. decided to supply its own Abrams tanks. The Storm Shadow is a cruise missile, typically launched from the air with stealth capabilities. It has a range in excess of 155 miles, three times the range of U.S.-provided missiles. The Storm Shadow's capabilities are really complementary to what the Ukrainians are planning to do with their spring offensive. It's able to use video imagery to target actual uh, areas that they're going after. Still, the U.S. Secretary of State has said that Ukraine already has what it needs to be successful. My own estimation is that uh, they um, have in place across all of those dimensions uh, what they need to continue to be successful in regaining territory that was seized by force by Russia over the last 14 months. 
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, on the other hand, has said his country is not quite ready, saying he is still waiting for aid already promised. We're expecting armored vehicles. They arrive in batches. We can advance with what we've got, and I think we can be successful. But we will lose a lot of people. I think that is unacceptable. We need to wait. As I mentioned, Ukraine has pledged to only use these new cruise missiles inside Ukrainian sovereign territory, that is, not to strike Russia. We should note, Jake, that from the British point of view, Crimea is very much uh, an open target here. They consider that illegally annexed by Russia. And that's strategically important because these missiles potentially put at risk some of Russia's most prized military possessions, the Black Sea Fleet, uh, the, the entire Crimea port. That could be a, a real game changer going forward as Ukraine plans this counteroffensive. Yeah. Now, we could mark this day as a, as a day when decisions were made that really changed things for, mm. for better or for worse. We don't know. Yeah. Tim Shudo, thanks so much. Still ahead on the lead. Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville has Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, all of them angry at him right now. Uh, and then he said something that he's trying to clean up. Stay with us. Politics now. A sitting U.S. senator who has already been criticized for racism has suddenly taken up the cause, seemingly, of white nationalists being able to serve in the U.S. military. In our radio interview this week, Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama had quite the flaming hot take. Democrats are attacking our military, saying we need to get out the white extremists, the white nationalists, people that don't don't believe in, in our agenda as, as uh, Joe Biden's agenda. You mentioned the Biden administration trying to prevent um, white nationalists from being in the military. Do you believe they should allow white nationalists in the military? Well, they call them that. I call them American. Now, on first blush, Senator Tuberville seems to be taking up the cause of white nationalists, people, people who believe in building a white-centric state. And he seems to be arguing they deserve to be armed and trained and to serve in the U.S. military. Tuberville's office has since attempted something of a cleanup effort, releasing a statement to Alabama.com saying, quote, Senator Tuberville's quote that is cited shows that he was being skeptical of the notion that there are white nationalists in the military, not that he believes they should be in the military, unquote. Today, Tuberville talked to CNN off camera and said, quote, here's the problem. Democrats portray all MAGA Republicans as white nationalists. That's not true. We've got a lot of great people in the military that are MAGAs. That's what I was talking about, unquote. All right, let's break this down. Three points. First, no one, no one in the military is worried about MAGA Republicans serving in the U.S. military. That would be ludicrous for any number of reasons, especially given the fact that so many service members are conservative. Point two, obviously most service members do not fit the definition. But there is a white supremacist problem in the U.S. military, according to the U.S. military, in study after study. And there's a long list of actual incidents and domestic terrorists who fall into this category. Point three, Senator Tuberville's attempt to distance himself from seeming to be standing up for the rights of white supremacists might be easier to believe if last fall Senator Tuberville had not made one of the most blatantly racist statements we've heard from a U.S. senator in perhaps decades, he falsely suggested that Democrats like crime and he smeared black people as criminals. Take a listen. 
some people say, well, they're soft on crime. No, they're not soft on crime. They're pro-crime. They want crime. They want crime because they want to take over what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparation because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. Bullshit. They are not owed that. Senator Tomerville there saying that Democrats like crime and they want reparations, which is the term for payments made to individuals who are descendants of slaves, because they think that people that do the crime are owed that. That's just racism. Tuberville not only defending the right of racists to serve in uniform, he's actively keeping, right now, high-ranking military officials and officers out of uniform. Senator Tuberville is currently protesting new Pentagon policies implemented in the military that provide leave for troops or their families who need to travel to get an abortion because they are in a state where it is not permitted. There are currently 196 military nominations pending in the Senate. Generals, admirals, 604, I mean, sorry, 64, three and four-star positions that will need to be filled soon, including the chief of the staff of the Army, the director of the National Security Agency, commander of U.S. Cyber Command. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin this week calling in a major national security risk, blasted Tuberville in a letter writing, quote, without these leaders in place, the U.S. military will incur an unnecessary and unprecedented degree of risk at a moment when our adversaries may seek to test our resolve, unquote. This also, of course, has a trickle-down effect on other military officer nominations, which in turn impacts regular military service members and their families who are moving to new installations for new assignments. The guy doing this, the guy holding up all these generals and admirals and colonels from being promoted and from the military for being ready for whatever threats the U.S. faces, Senator Tuberville, to sum up, he says, black people are criminals. He says, white nationalists are Americans. And I guess for Senator Tuberville, the year is 1843. Let's talk about this with former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who served in the U.S. Air Force, currently serves as a lieutenant colonel in the Air National Guard. A lot to talk about here. Uh, Let's start with his comments on white nationalists in in the military and this idea that the Biden administration wants to purge. I mean, mean, I'm not sure whether he is actually defending the idea of white nationalists serving in the military or he is lying about the fact that there's some effort to get Republicans out of the military. Well, I think he's lying about both. You know, first off, there are some things I disagree with that are happening in the military. And as a pilot, you know, I spend quite a bit of my time doing computer-based training uh, on things that have nothing to do with my job. You can criticize that and you can make that an issue. Yeah. But the idea, the idea that there aren't white nationalists is wrong. There's some. It's not a lot, but there's some. And then, you know, the idea that they're Americans is, is, is crazy. You would just say, oh, they're Americans, they're fine. And the idea that there's this push to push out Republicans is not true either. You know, look, the the U.S. military is one of the last institutions to enjoy bipartisan support. I mean, even the FBI now is a partisan thing. Every person that tries to make the military a partisan issue, Ted Cruz, you know, tweeting about how great the Russians are, despite the fact that they're getting crushed on the battlefield now, um, you know, that kind of stuff, it's politicizing the military and that can't happen. And white nationalists, by the way, Jake, should be excluded from serving in the U.S. military. I got asked when I joined the military if I was a communist or if I was a member of a group that sought the overthrow of the U.S. government. And if I'd have said yes, I wouldn't have been able to serve. We can expand that to include white nationalism. And, I mean, for me, this comment about, like, well, I call them Americans, like that coming after what he said about Democrats 
like crime, and that's why they want to give reparations to the people who do the crime. I can't recall a more blatantly racist statement by a member of the U.S. Senate in literally in decades. Yeah, and the problem is, Jake, we're kind of like numb to the outrage now. There's so much outrage that is just constantly being thrown at us that it gets buried, or we're like, oh, that's that's not a huge deal. That's a huge deal. Um, I mean, it's it's outright blatant racism, uh, what he said. I'm glad, I guess, he's trying to, to change what he meant by that. I, I don't think it's inaccurate, the changes, but at least he's, you know, recognizing that that's bad for him. But here's what happens. You know, everybody has a battle in their heart every day between light and dark, you know, and when leaders stand up in front of you and they speak the dark parts of your hearts, the fears, you know, all that kind of stuff, it gives permission for that darkness to overtake you. And leaders in America, for the most part, you know, for all of our history have realized they have to, they have to shed light. This is a time where they're standing in front of crowds and spewing darkness. And it's a frightening time, frankly. It is. We heard some of that darkness last night also. Former Congressman Adam Kinzinger, thank you so much, as always. Appreciate it. Coming up next, test results on a vaccine that doctors say could be promising in the fight against cancer. Topping our health lead today, an experimental vaccine has injected fresh hope into fighting one of the deadliest cancers. BioNTech, one of the companies that helped make the mRNA vaccines for COVID-19, has developed a promising personalized vaccine for those battling pancreatic cancer, one, one of the worst. It's a disease that once diagnosed kills nearly nine in 10 people. Uh, the 16-person study was just published in the journal Nature. Of those 16, eight responded to the vaccine, which taught their immune systems how to recognize and fight off cancer cells. Zero of those eight participants had their cancer returned. Zero. The other eight people with pancreatic cancer in the study did not respond to the vaccine, sadly. Still, scientists say that while it was a small sample, they're, quote, very exciting preliminary results. Let's hope it comes to something. Also in our health lead, a peanut patch may soon help protect toddlers from severe allergic reactions. A recent trial gave more than 200 toddlers who had been diagnosed with a peanut allergy a patch to wear between their shoulder blades. The patch contained peanut proteins equivalent to about one one-thousandth of a peanut. After a year of wearing the patch, children with a less severe peanut allergy could safely consume three or four peanuts. Those with a more severe allergy could safely consume one. More testing is needed, of course, but the patch could give new hope to toddlers and families around the world. The hits against Donald Trump keep coming, not just from Democrats, from Republicans as well. After last night's CNN town hall, one notable Republican will join CNN's Wolf Blitzer next in the Situation Room. Wolf, a lot of strong thoughts, a lot of strong opinions about what went down last night. Indeed, uh, you're right, Jake. Uh, while some New Hampshire Republicans cheered Donald Trump, uh, cheered him on during the town hall in New Hampshire, the state's GOP governor is slamming the former president after his life-filled performance, calling him a loser. Governor Chris Sununu will join me uh, in the Situation Room. He's a vocal Trump critic and a potential presidential contender who could be a potent challenger to Trump in the leadoff GOP primary state. That and more coming up in just a few minutes right here in the Situation Room. Can't wait to watch uh, Governor Sununu. Always a a candid and engaging interview. Wolf, we'll we'll be watching. Thanks so much. Coming up next, the big announcement from Elon Musk just a few hours ago. In our tech lead, Elon Musk says he has found a new CEO to take over Twitter months after he first promised to step back from the job. Musk did not give a name for the new CEO, but he did say she will be starting in about six weeks. Musk has had a somewhat chaotic reign at the top of Twitter since buying the company 
in October for $44 billion. He says he'll transition to focusing on Twitter's software and system operations. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. I'm also on Blue Sky. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you know, you, you can listen to The Lead once you get your podcasts. All two hours, just sitting there like a giant cassava melon, ready for you to jump into it. The uh, Situation Room starts with Wolf Blitzer right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.